section ten of charles james fox by henry offley wakeman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter five the coalition part two such is the secret history of the famous coalition perhaps the best known of all the eighteen ministries of george the third the plot if plot it was was completely successful ministers found themselves in a minority of seventeen on a motion of censure on the peace and on the twenty fourth of february shelburne resigned for five weeks england was without a government the king strained every nerve to avoid accepting the coalition he appealed to pitt to lord gower to lord north apart from fox to fox apart from the duke of portland to pitt again to lord temple and even to thomas pitt who was quite undistinguished as a statesman but it was no use on the second of april he bowed to the inevitable but with as ill a grace as he could when charles fox came to kiss hands wrote lord townsend george the third turned back his ears and eyes just like the horse at astley's when the tailor he had determined to throw was getting on him the duke of portland succeeded shelburne at the treasury lord north and fox became the secretaries of state lord john cavendish returned to the exchequer keppel to the admiralty and burke to the paymastership the followers of lord north such as loughborough carlisle stormont etc were rewarded with lower offices few combinations in the history of political parties have been received by historians and posterity with more unqualified condemnation than the coalition of 1783 it has been denounced as monstrous and unnatural it has been ascribed to the influence of the worst passions which degrade human nature petty spite greed of power revenge and avarice such are the parents whose fell union ushered forth into the world this child born in bitterness and nurtured in convulsion and even the methods adopted to bring about its ruin have been condoned on the principle that vermin are out of the protection of the law and yet it may well be questioned whether a great deal of this righteous indignation is not as is too often the case in history merely the penalty of failure the advantages which england derived from its overthrow are written large on the page of history she obtained a strong and stable government more truly representative of the real wishes of englishmen than any government since the days of walpole she obtained a minister who both in his virtues and his failings was essentially the minister whom england delighted to honour she found a fit object for her deepest loyalty in a king now for the first time in thorough sympathy with his ministry and with what was best in the nation the opposition weakened and discredited seemed day by day to be losing character and to become more and more entangled in subversive and sentimental theories which were above all things un-english by an easy transition the blunders of the whig opposition were seen to spring from the crimes of the whig ministry and to the shameful principles of the coalition were ascribed in logical sequence the doctrines of tom paine the drinking bouts of sheridan and the crimes of the prince of wales 
it is not too much to say that this atrocious character attributed to the coalition is an afterthought there is no evidence to show that at the time it struck politicians in general as being especially heinous it is true that severe remarks were made about it in the house of commons when it first took practical shape in the debate of the seventeenth of february severe remarks would of course always be made by opponents on any combination which seemed formidable fox answered them with excellent temper and a good deal of common sense i come to take notice of the most heinous charge of all i am accused of having formed a junction with a noble person whose principles i have been in the habit of opposing for the last seven years of my life i see no reason for calling such a meeting an unnatural junction it is neither wise nor noble to keep up animosity ties forever it is neither just nor candid to keep up animosity when the cause of it is no more it is not in my nature to bear malice or live in ill-will amicitiae semper ternae in amicitiae placabiles i disdain to keep alive in my bosom the enmities which i may bear to a man when the cause of those enmities is no more when a man ceases to be what he was when the opinions which made him obnoxious are changed he then is no more my enemy but my friend the american war was the cause of the enmity between the noble lord and myself the american war and the american question is at an end the noble lord has profited from fatal experience when that system was maintained nothing could be more asunder than the noble lord and myself but it is now no more and it is therefore wise and candid to put an end also to the ill-will the animosity the rancour and the feuds which it occasioned and again a few days later it is only from the coalition of parties for the honest purpose of opposing measures so destructive to the interests of the country that the spirit of constitutional power can ever be restored to its former vigour it becomes men to forget private resentments when the cause of the nation calls so immediately for public unanimity it is only a coalition that can restore the shattered system of administration to its proper tone of vigorous exertion by this means we shall regain the lost confidence of the people and it is only that confidence that can give effect to the springs of government these arguments had their due effect both in the house and outside there seems to have been during the first few months of the coalition government no attempt either in parliament or in the country to stigmatize it as an unprincipled thing outside ordinary political morality the opposition to it on the score of its strange and unnatural character died quickly away even among the partisans of shelburne and the king soon remained the only man in great position who continued to hold that view of it and if we come to look closely into it it must necessarily have been so some coalition was certain there was nothing now the american war was over in the political opinions of fox and north at that time to make a coalition between them more unnatural than one between shelburne and north there was not nearly so much difference of opinion as existed between fox and shelburne 
yet an agreement between those statesmen would have seemed natural enough to every one and had been approved of by the king besides fox and north were not the only two people concerned their supporters were not mere machines who turned their coats at their bidding no one has ever dared even to murmur a charge of want of principle against the political career of the duke of portland or of lord john cavendish their honour is above reproach they had just given proof of it by insisting on retiring from the cabinet with fox rather than serve under a statesman whom they distrusted though unlike fox they had had no personal quarrel with shelburne against keppel the case would be even stronger for keppel had been personally wronged by north's ministry yet keppel was willing to forget the past it is impossible seriously to maintain that one hundred and twenty tories and ninety whigs agreed to prostitute their political honour for the greed of place at the bidding of two unprincipled leaders the real charge against fox is not that he coalesced with north but that he coalesced with north after having for so many years accused him of conduct almost criminal it is not the coalition that is unnatural and unprincipled but fox who is unprincipled for joining the coalition the dilemma shapes itself this way when fox accused north of public perfidy and unexampled treachery when in seventeen seventy nine he denounced the idea of union with him as abominable scandalous and disgraceful an alliance with disgrace and ruin with the worst enemies of england he either believed what he said or he did not if he did it was clearly unprincipled conduct on his part to join an alliance which he himself admitted to be scandalous if he did not he was equally guilty in stirring up public passion by attacks on men which he did not believe to be true to some extent undoubtedly the dilemma holds in the days when men spoke to the house of commons and not to the nation outside the temptation was very great to use strong and unqualified language every one did it himself and every one expected it in others it was a pity to lose a rhetorical effect by precision of language when every one understood what was said in a pickwickian sense fox with his impetuous temperament his brilliant imagination and rapid utterance was no more likely to check the rush of his eloquence by an anxiety not to exaggerate than a jockey at a close finish would refuse to use his spurs for fear of punishing his horse he was perpetually in exaggeration and to that extent must bear the blame of want of principle men who now sit down and read his fiery invective in cold blood naturally wonder how he could ever forget or north condone men who were present and saw the sunny boisterous temperament lash itself into quick anger and be carried away in a whirlwind of ungovernable rage could easily understand how soon the impression would pass from his placable heart with the cause which produced it and warm-hearted friendship resume her reign as the genial sun bursts out after a summer storm if the coalition was not dishonourable and disgraceful to the two chief parties concerned it certainly was not disadvantageous to the nation the arguments of fox on that point were unanswerable 
During twenty-three years there had been no less than ten different administrations. The old Whig phalanx had been so hopelessly disintegrated that it was quite impossible to find a leader who could command a solid majority. The Tories, broken as they were by the American War, would no longer rally to the discredited standard of North. Shelburne had become in a year so unpopular with all parties that his retirement was the only thing absolutely certain in English politics. A strong government was essential to England's welfare, and the coalition between Fox and North afforded the best chance of establishing a strong government. And to the Whig party, the coalition promised to be no less advantageous than to the nation. A few staunch Whigs, like the Duke of Richmond, stood apart. He had put his name, he said, to too many protests against North to feel comfortable in his company. A few of the older race of Whigs who had once followed Chatham, like the Duke of Grafton and Lord Camden, refused to join. But the younger men and the able men followed Fox. From a party point of view, they were undoubtedly right. The party might be called a coalition party, the policy might to some extent be a coalition policy, but the ministry was a Whig ministry, pure and simple. Lord North was the only cabinet minister, not a Whig. Much might be said from the Tory side of the impolicy of coalescing with the Whigs on terms which surrendered everything and received nothing. Deliverance from a worst coalition was but a cold comfort to a Tory, who was called upon by party obligations to vote steadily to keep the Whigs in office. Fox certainly was not liable to the charge of having made a bad bargain for his party. Men's minds went naturally back a few years and remembered how, at a great crisis of the country's history, a coalition ministry, which had been formed under circumstances by no means unlike the present, had raised England to a height of fame greater than she had ever experienced before. They fondly hoped that history would repeat itself. If Chatham could fairly boast that he had borrowed Newcastle's majority in 1757 in order to govern the country, with even greater justice could Fox boast in 1783 that he had borrowed North's majority to establish the ascendancy of the Whigs. Yet, the coalition ministry was a fatal political blunder and wrecked the fortunes of the Whig party. There was one element left out of the calculation, and that vitiated the whole. No fairy left unasked to a wedding banquet ever revenged herself more speedily and more fatally than did George III on the coalition politicians who had neglected him. Many circumstances combined to make the king implacable. The shuffling of the political cards behind his back and without his knowledge or consent was peculiarly distasteful to him. He saw himself treated as if he were already king of the Marathas. He had resented the way in which Portland was put forward in 1782, and now Portland was being actually forced on him against his will. He hated Fox and looked upon him as an enemy to his throne, and chief among the corruptors of his son's morals and politics. But the cruelest stroke of all was the stab which Lord North gave him from behind. 
et tu brute lord north had been his chosen servant his friend more than his minister on whom he had lavished all the tenderness and thoughtfulness of which his nature was capable and now lord north was in the ranks of his enemies and aspiring to be peshawar over him often had george the third been obliged to accept a minister who was personally distasteful to him he always fought to the last against him but when he had given way he treated him fairly and openly he looked upon the coalition ministers in a totally different light they were a set of political sharpers who were not fit to be treated as gentlemen he never attempted to conceal his opinion of them at his levees he would scarcely speak to them in his first letter to shelburne after the vote condemning the peace he lamented that it was his lot to reign in the most profligate age to lord temple he called it the most unprincipled coalition the annals of this or any other nation can equal and spoke of his own attitude toward his new cabinet in most unmistakable terms a ministry which i have avowedly attempted to avoid by calling on every other description of men cannot be supposed to have either my favour or my confidence and as such i shall most certainly refuse any honours they may ask for i trust the eyes of the nation may soon be opened as my sorrow may prove fatal to my health if i remain long in this thraldom i trust you will be steady in your attachment to me and ready to join other honest men in watching the conduct of this unnatural combination and i hope many months will not elapse before the grenvilles the pitts and other men of abilities and character will relieve me from a situation which nothing could have compelled me to submit to but the supposition that no other means remained of preventing the public finances from being materially effected it is abundantly evident from this letter that the king regarded his ministers not merely with dislike but with rancorous hostility he never intended to deal fairly with them he looked on their existence as a tyranny to which he only submitted under press of bankruptcy which he would throw off directly he had the opportunity this was a factor in the political problem which the ministers had never taken into consideration they were prepared to fight openly with shelburne or with pitt they were prepared to endure uncomplainingly the aversion of the king but to have to defend themselves day by day and hour by hour against the secret intrigues and underhand plots of their nominal master was to plunge them into a contest in which sooner or later they were bound to receive a fall nothing said fox himself of the coalition but success can justify it unfortunately for him the attitude of the king made success impossible End of section ten